0: Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding, dying. This morning's uh, scripture reading is taken out of 1 Corinthians chapter nine. 1 Corinthians chapter nine. And if you don't have your Bible, um, or you're visiting with us, if you look in front of you, there you should find a blue pew Bible. And you can find 1 Corinthians chapter 9 on page 957. 957. We're going to begin reading in verse 24 and continue into chapter 10, uh, all the way through verse 13. Verse 24 of chapter 9. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Chapter 10, verse 1. and were destroyed by the destroyer now these things happen to them as an example but they were not written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man god is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be, may be able to endure it. The word of our Lord lives forever.
1: This is the second week. It was two weeks ago we began on this passage. And we're particularly looking, as you see in the bulletin, at the first phrase of verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. And so we're going to continue to look at that phrase. And as you'll see this morning, we're going to explore more what is the overall context of this, this passage and, and how does it apply to our lives. What is Paul trying to get at as he speaks to these Corinthians in their particular situation? And then how does that speak to us in our particular situation? Let's ask the Lord to bless us as we study His Word. Lord, we thank You for this Word which You have given us. We thank You that You have preserved it over the years, that You have given it to us in our language, and You've given us so many helps to study it. We thank You, Lord, that it is a revelation of Your glory, a revelation of Your salvation, a revelation of what You do in people's lives, and it reveals also the many ways that we are to obey you and, and the, the way that we live out our Christian life. And Lord, you give us examples and counterexamples. And we get to, through these letters that Paul writes to churches struggling, uh, we get to enter into that struggle and ask ourselves, how am I struggling and, and how have I fallen even as some have fallen then? Uh, Lord, thank you that you get into the nit- nitty-gritty of our lives with your word that Your Word draws us to Your grace so that we experience in fresh ways the good news of the gospel of Christ in which we are forgiven and transformed. Oh, Lord, thank You for this Word, and may it be applied to our lives powerfully by Your Holy Spirit who gave it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, When I was 10 or 11 years old... Uh, my brother and I thought that we would, my little brother, we thought that we would, and of course this was mainly me leading my little brother, what would happen if you tried to light gasoline? Right off the bat, kid. I almost didn't give this example because I don't want to, you know, don't say this to my children, they have never thought of it. But so kids right off the bat, no, 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 no. Foolish And we don't like to use the word stupid, you know. You're not supposed to use that word, this was stupid, okay. So, we had this brick patio, uh, I mean, a brick barbecue on the back patio. And so, I remember that we had the gasoline can for the lawnmower sitting on the barbecue pit. And I don't remember now, (laughs) because it was all blown out of my mind, Uh, but... I don't remember now exactly what we were trying to do, but all I remember at this point is an explosion of fire, a boom and fire shooting up in the air, us falling on the pavement. And here in my uh, great honesty and forthrightness with my mother, I knew she'd be coming straight out the back door. So I, the leader of the band, go around this way into the carport, you see. So she's coming out to find only my little brother, and I'm running inside, and then I come out innocently, what was that? Of course, that lasted about a second or two, and uh, then it was made apparent that I was the one who had really done it all, and my brother had followed along and of course i got into big big trouble because of the whole thing and the the horrible horrible thing that makes me tremble is that i could have killed myself and my brother that day or or we could have been horribly disfigured for our whole lives we could have been, had our faces burned so that we we looked horrible the whole i mean not that i looked that great now but just <clears throat> would have been and so you know I, At at a gas station, you're not supposed to, of course, even light a cigarette. You're supposed to even be careful with static electricity. You know they tell you, don't get back in your car after you start pumping and get out because you'll create static electricity, which could explode, and you could be killed or maimed. All of these warnings, and here I was, carelessly, taking a match to gasoline. Just makes me tremble to think about it. But I think there's a parallel as Paul is dealing with the sin of the Corinthians and the Corinthians' basic attitude towards sin. It wasn't, it, it was not that different than my attitude toward this gasoline. They were, you could say, deadly careless, deadly careless with sin. And that's why in the passage, the verse right before the one we're dealing with, He says, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. He means standing in a prideful, self-satisfied way. He means being complacent, not having one's guard up against sin, not actively putting sin to death in your life across the boards, not actively striving for change in your life not seeking more of Christ to explore the riches of God in the Scriptures and to embrace Him more and more and draw near to Him. Let him who thinks he stands in this careless way be careful that he not fall. And on the heels of that, he says... No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. That last phrase that is translated in some of our versions like it is in the ESV here, uh, common to man, is just one word in the original Greek. Now, you may be familiar with the Greek word anthropos, from which we get anthropology. That's pretty easy. Human being, anthropos. Um, Well, this word has a little P-I in there, so it's anthropinos, so it's almost the same as anthropos. It means basically human. You have no temptation that's overcome you. That's basically what human beings experience. It's just human temptation. And it can be looked at one way, which we'll try to do in the weeks to come, of saying, hey, you don't, you're don't. you not any worse off than anybody else. What, what's happening to you? Don't feel sorry for yourself or make excuses like, my temptation is really bad. Well, no, it's just... Human temptation. But I don't think that's what Paul's getting at here. That is an application for that general idea that temptation is common. But in this passage, it's one of warning. It's one of warning. And so he's saying here, don't think then as you think you stand. Don't think you're above the normal human dangers of sin. Don't think you're above the normal dangers of being tempted and falling into destruction as I've just described the Israelites falling into destruction. You see, he gives those examples, they fell, they fell, they fell. Though if you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. No temptation is overtaking you that's not common. You're not above the fray. You're in the middle of it. You're, You're susceptible to the same destruction that they are. Don't think of yourself as better than that or insulated from that somehow. And of course, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, they had a view of the Lord's Supper and and of baptism as though it kind of created them in a super-spiritual way that they could be insulated from these hazards of temptation and sin and destruction. No, take heed lest you fall. And two areas that he deals with here, uh, idolatry and sexual immorality, are areas that he is addressing to the Corinthians in verses in chapters 8 through 10 he's dealing with their idolatry in chapters 5 and 6 he deals strongly in part of 7 strongly with their sexual immorality so as he mentions those things here you see it's because he's talking to the Corinthians of those very things of sexual immorality and idolatry and then he puts it before him and says they engaged in it and they were destroyed take heed Take heed that you not play around in these areas in your life. That's the feel of 1 Corinthians 10 here. And so next week as we come to the Lord's table, I want to deal with the idolatry because it was their participation in the fellowship of pagan meals thinking that it didn't matter even as they would participate in the holy meal of the Lord's Supper. And so I want to reserve it for that. But this morning, I would like to look at this idea. How did Paul uh, c- come at them about their sexual immorality? And, and how were they uh, being overtaken by it? How were they casually dealing with it, standing and not taking heed uh, about falling and being destroyed by it? So in that one area, we're going to back up and look a bit as at how Paul uh, dealt with this. And so we can be better made aware of our own possible carelessness, not only in that area, but other areas of our lives. So we're going to look at how they were being careless uh, and, and then see how we can keep from that temptation to be so careless. Now in chapter 5, and we can't really read it in any detail uh, and this is page 954, again, if you're using the Pew Bible. He's dealing there with their careless attitude toward one of their members who is actually sleeping with his stepmother. Not a great thing. And they were not doing anything about it. He, calls, he talks about their arrogance. Arrogance. And not doing anything about it. It wasn't an act of love. It was their arrogance. And their sense that it really doesn't matter that much. Even their philosophical view that that acts of bodily sin like this really don't matter that much. And then in the latter part of chapter 6, and, and I won't go into the great detail here because I preached on that. In fact... Uh, I'm famous now for preaching, not really famous, but infamous more, uh, for preaching on this topic uh, on an Easter one time because there's a lot of talk about the resurrection here. But, you know, my elders always kid me to say, you know, it's the only time at Easter we ever heard about prostitution. So <laughs> uh, that's my infamous uh, reputation. But. Both things are tied in here in the latter part of chapter 6. He talks about their careless attitude towards sexual immorality. Men professing to be Christians were actually going to prostitutes. You see, the the level of sexual sin was, was great in both chapters here. And it's just a version of the Greek thinking in which the body is so important Uh, So unimportant that what you do with it really doesn't matter. It's going to be destroyed one day. So who cares what you do with it in the meantime? But they gave it a kind of Christian twist. And Gordon Fee writes this. Apparently, some men within the Christian community are going to prostitutes and are arguing for the right to do so. There'll be one thing shamefully to do it put another thing to openly do it and argue for the right to do so. Religiously. Being people of the Spirit, they imply, has moved them to a higher plane, the realm of the Spirit, where they are unaffected by behavior that has merely to do with the body. Convenient. Convenient religious view. So Paul teaches them in this chapter that the body... He says specifically, it is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. He cares as much about your body as he does your soul. He's all about the body. He is pro-body. How can I say that? He's going to raise your body in the last day. Your body is a member of Christ, not just your soul. And the Holy Spirit, unlike some modern TV uh, preachers say, Oh, Jesus dwells just in your spirit. That's the part in which he dwells you. As though he will have nothing to do with your body, which is just a mere casing for the real you. The Bible doesn't say that. It says the Holy Spirit has made your body a temple so that your body will be raised. Your body is a member of Christ. Your body is indwelled by the Holy Spirit. It is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul says in this passage, flee immorality. How can your body, which is joined to Christ, be joined to a prostitute? How can you take the very temple of the Holy Spirit and desecrate it in this way? It matters everything what you do with your body. And you're being careless and flippant and cavalier about your attitude towards sexual immorality. And that's why earlier in the chapter in verses 9 and 10, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. You see, the deception of thinking that you can live a life of sexual immorality and then you can just go on to heaven. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And of course, it doesn't mean that if you've ever done any of these things, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Because in the next verse, he says, and such were some of you. All of those things. And he says... And some of you were just those things. That's what we were before Christ found us in one way or another. And so you were, he says, washed and sanctified and justified. And so your new life in Christ is incompatible with your former life. In fact, persistent, unrepentant sinning in these ways means and will ultimately mean if you continue that way that you will not inherit the kingdom of God because it shows you never really belong to Him. It would show that you've really refused His forgiveness. You've really refused His lordship. You're ultimately untouched by His forgiveness and lordship and you're not transformed by His forgiveness and lordship. Paul says, don't be deceived in this. It matters. It doesn't mean that we as believers won't have various struggles with these issues. It doesn't mean that we may fall and repent even as the disciples did and others in the Scriptures. But to live that life as a way of life, to be committed to that life without repentance and think that everything's going to be okay, Paul says, it will not be okay. And in chapter 10, you see he's bringing... There's a connection between chapter 10 where he says, they fell in the wilderness and were destroyed. And this passage that says, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. See the connection? He says, there's destruction if this is your lifestyle. It was destruction for the Israelites. It will be destruction for you if that is your lifestyle. And so Christianity teaches forgiveness and it teaches transformation. Transformation. Wonderfully, transformation, that we're put on the path of blessing and joy of submitting ourselves to a gracious God who has gracious commands. Now, interestingly, the women also manifested their super-spiritual condition. See, this was the men's super-spirituality that they could just go and participate in these ways, and it didn't matter because they're super-spiritual, and what you do with the body doesn't matter. Now, a little background before we hit what he says, which is primarily, they think, commentators to the women in chapter 7. But a little background, you may remember in the time of Jesus, and during this time as well, but... But they, we see the encounter with Jesus of a group called the Sadducees. There were Pharisees, that was one group of religious leaders, and another group was Sadducees. The Pharisees were the more conservative group, the Sadducees the more liberal group. And among their liberal views was that they did not believe that in, in the bodily resurrection in the last day. They just did not believe in the resurrection. So... In their discussions with Christ, they're trying philosophically and logically to trip him up and show that view to be ridiculous, and therefore Christ to be ridiculous, and so we can just discount this rabbi, this teacher. So you can read about it in Matthew chapter uh, 22, that's page 828 if you want to turn there, but I'll just read it to you. The same day Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher... Moses says, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. That was the law. Man marries a woman, he dies. It's the brother's uh, obligation then to marry her to raise up children for that first brother. So um, they're just saying, suppose this happens. Okay. There There were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, having no children, left his wife to his brother. And so to the second and the third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. And there you can just see the little gleam in their eye. Now, in the resurrection, which man will be her husband? Because all of them were her husband. (laughs) <laughs> you know, he's thinking, all right, we got him now, you know. So and, you know, like Jesus is supposed to say, "Ooh, man, that's a tough one, you know. Well, Jesus answered, you are wrong because, you know, neither the scriptures nor the power of God for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, not literally angels. We don't become angels, but we're like the angels in that there's no marriage. Now, Kay and I don't understand how that could be. We just don't. We can't conceive of it. We've kind of agreed that we're at least going to have houses next door. If we can, work it, you know. But uh, it's just because you can't conceive of what that's like, you know. But uh, nonetheless, that's what he says. And apparently, the intimacy of marriage is transcended by an intimacy that just makes that You know, you think, oh, oh, I didn't realize what the ultimate intimacy was going to be in heaven. That far surpasses what we even know in marriage. And so God has a a glorious thing reserved for it. But but there's that phrase, he says, neither marry nor given in marriage. And as for the resurrection of the dead... You're touching on that issue as to whether there is a resurrection of the dead. Have you not read in the scriptures, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. In other words, he says, I am the God of Abraham. He said, he said that after Abraham was gone. That means Abraham was still alive. You know, point proved. You know, there is life after death. There is fellowship with God after death because he says, I am the God of Abraham, even after Abraham was gone. Pretty good answer, I'd say, on Jesus' part, on both both scores. But what they think then is that these women of the Spirit, you see, these women that, just like the men, they they had embraced, you know, what was good teaching, but then had wrong conclusions with it, that we've entered a new age in Christ. And we have. We're living in the heavenlies with Christ, which Paul says we are. And so they apparently were drawing the conclusion then that if we're truly living in the heavenly place, if we're truly, then we're not given to marriage anymore. We don't have to be a part of all that body stuff anymore. And so they were refusing relations with their husbands. As a part of their new spirituality, you see. And so, as Paul says here, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. He's likely quoting them, you see, quoting the super spiritual women. And he's meaning not outside of marriage, but within marriage. That's the teaching. Just like Paul later has to deal with the teaching that you should abstain from marriage and the pleasures of marriage because that can't be the really holy pathway to God. And so here, their new spirituality means they don't have sexual relations anymore. And he says, no, because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife. That's The the meaning of that is to sexually embrace her, to have his own wife in that way. Each woman is to have her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except maybe for a limited time for prayer, and then come together, lest you be involved in sexual immorality. So it's interesting, isn't it? Super spiritual men going outside the marriage bed and super spiritual women refusing the marriage bed. Now, I don't think the people are the same then as they are now. <laughs> and in both chapters where Paul discusses these things, he says emphatically, it does matter, men and women, what you do with your body. It is a spiritual issue. It is an issue of your relationship to God, what you do with your body in these ways. You super spirituals, It is you cannot ignore these issues. You cannot play games with God as though you're all about worship and prayer and Bible study, but you're also devoting yourself to hours a week to immersed in porn, or in the other case, you think you can ignore the marriage bed, and it's no big deal with God. That's how he's addressing these men and these women. Pretty practical, pretty nitty-gritty, getting down to where we live. And it's part of his overall emphasis to the Corinthians, trying to show them the seriousness of living out their new life in Christ in every area of their lives. You can't be careless about your Christian life. That's over. Let him who thinks he stands, who is just casual, cavalier, complacent about his Christian life, in whatever way, let him take heed lest he fall and be destroyed. And it's interesting, the bridge between these two sections, you might say the men's section and the women's section, It's verse 20, chapter 6, verse 20. The bridge is glorify God in your body. Glorify God in your body. And here's the principle. Gospel transformation can wonderfully affect every area of your life and should wonderfully affect every area of your life. Glorify God in your body means in the whole of your life, in every part of your life. And certainly, you don't leave out anything. Later in chapter 10, he emphasizes and says, whether you're eating or drinking or whatever you do. And I heard a minister years ago say, hey, even when you're most like the animals, you're just eating and drinking. You think, well, this is just necessity. I have got to do it. He said, whatever you're doing, even eating or drinking, do it all to the glory of God. There's no wall that divides your spiritual time like this hour to every other part of your week or a a wall that's set up around a meal and you're gobbling down food, but it has nothing to do with God. No, every part of your life can manifest God's glory. So. We don't think then that we are all about God during this hour and that every other hour is not about God. Everything you do or say is about God one way or another so that the whole of life in every detail and thought and word and deed is worship, is meant to be an act of worship. And we can't wall off a part of our life and say, God has nothing to do with this or this has nothing to do with God. Everything has everything to do with God. Okay? Everything has everything to do with God. But the Corinthians uh, were, in, in the way they approached their lives, it was compartmentalized. They had one part of their whole life was not even part of God. Their whole bodily life was shut off from Him. And you see, here's the Apostle Paul Giving in chapter 9, right before uh, we have this chapter 10 with verse 13 that we're dealing with. In the whole of chapter 9, he is going to great lengths to prove that he himself is giving himself relentlessly to try to obey God in every area. And, and in that most of that chapter, he's devoted to saying, look, I could be making a living from preaching the gospel. Everything in the Old Testament, everything that Jesus said was that we should make a living off the gospel, as I do. You know, I don't have another job somewhere, although sometimes that happens. Sometimes it has to happen. But Paul says, because with you Corinthians, I didn't want you to think that I was there just to get money off of you. I didn't take that right or privilege. I worked, and he did work with Priscilla and Aquila, who were fellow tent makers. And so that he made his own money at Corinth for a year and a half, so that they didn't have to give him any money. He says, I didn't have to do that, but I did it. I went that extra mile always trying to to devote myself to the gospel. And he said, if, if I'm with the weak or I'm with the Jew or the Gentile, I'm always trying to sacrifice. I'm always trying, to, even if it makes me uncomfortable, I'm always trying to give myself away for the sake of the gospel. And then he finally issues in this glorious thing that... Uh, That Steve read, do you not know that in a race the runners compete? And so Paul says, I'm running this race. I'm boxing. I'm fighting. I'm disciplining myself. I'm giving myself completely to this. And I want you to look with me at verse 23, what Paul says. And we're going to compare that with verse 27. He says in verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel... But notice, not only for the sake of other people getting the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessing. You see this? He says, I give myself relentlessly to this gospel so that I may share its blessing, so that I may live out its glory and its beauty in my own life, and ultimately that I will share in the final blessing that this gospel promises. And that's why he says in verse 27, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself myself should be disqualified so that I would not be one of those vain preachers who just preaches it, who makes his money off of it, he gets all hot and bothered in front of people, but it's really not real in his heart. Paul says, I don't want to find that out to be about myself. Now, here's it's it's really arguing from the greater to the lesser, and the, the point is, if the apostle doesn't coast because he's an apostle. You think, man, you got it made in the shade, dude. You you can just relax. I mean, you're the apostle Paul. He didn't. It'd be kind of like, if you want to make a comparison, it'd be be like somebody who really tans very easily, which I'm not one of those people. But somebody who just really, really tans easily. And here I am, you know, I spend any time out there, and I just get burned. Burned. OK, take some of you that are white and red-headed like me, and you get burned just immediately. So imagine this, the, the person that tans is using sunscreen very carefully because he doesn't want in any way to have a chance of getting any kind of cancer. And here you are, white, white as you can be, and red hair, and you're just over there flaming putting baby oil on you, you know, burning yourself. That's kind of the comparison here. Paul says, I'm an apostle and I'm being careful in every way I know to be to manifest Christ in my life. And you Corinthians are just playing with sin. And so, it's not that we're on a performance basis with God. No. We read from Paul, he declares, he declares the ungodly to be justified. That's an amazing phrase in chapter 4, verse 5 of Romans. He justifies the ungodly. They haven't changed themselves when they come to him. They can't. They just come and fall before him and say, I'm ungodly. I'm broken. I'm lost. Save me. And he declares them not guilty by his grace because of what Christ has done. So that's not performance. It's everything but that. In fact, we have to believe in him who justifies the ungodly because we admit to him we are the ungodly. We are broken. We are unrighteous. Lord, my only hope is that you will forgive me and accept me because of Jesus Christ. But having tasted that forgiveness, I love what Psalm 130 verse 4 says, there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Not fear in the scared kind, but the fear of respect and honor and trust and love and praise. That's a gigantic word of the total response of a human being to God. There's forgiveness for what in? So that we can just live any way we want to and now we can kick back and take it easy? There's forgiveness so that our whole life will be given up to His will now. That's what forgiveness does in your life. And the more we experience that love, it doesn't make you sit back It makes you give yourself away. That's why right before the most practical section of Ephesians, when Paul starts to talk about obedience, you know what the last thing he deals with in chapter 3 is? I pray that together you will know the height and depth and length and width of the love of Christ. Then he launches into, now, how do we respond to that love? How do we live out that love? And so, it's not in any way that we are on a performance basis. It's as we more and more experience His love and forgiveness and and give honor to His Lordship. And so, Romans 12, 1 begins, according to His mercies, because of His mercies, let's give ourselves up as a living sacrifice. And so, brothers and sisters, I'm just urging you, as I urge myself, we must be growing. Growing growing, moving, advancing in Christ. We tend to think that we can just coast in a canoe, you know. And I want to tell you that if you're not doing anything, the canoe is going downstream. You're going backwards. Or let's just put it this way. Five years from now, the canoe is supposed to be up here, and you're still back here. You can't just, you don't coast in the Christian life. That's why Peter says, 2 Peter 3.18, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Are you growing in that grace and knowledge? How do you grow except knowing His Word, personally, in groups, in in worship? Growing in that knowledge. Ephesians 4, we're to grow up in every way into Christ. 1 Peter uh Long for the pure spiritual milk, probably the Word and all of that the Word does, that you may grow into salvation. What would a crop be if it's not growing? What would a wound be if it's not healing? What would a gymnast be if they're not being changed in a swimmer who's training, but he always swims the same speed? No! <laughs> What if you're a soldier and you're trained for eight weeks or 12 weeks and you're about the same, you haven't built any muscle or any training, you can't shoot any better, you're no different than when you started. No! We're to be changing, advancing. What of a child that never grew? That's a tragedy. That's a disease. So, brothers and sisters, by His grace, let's grow Take courage from 2 Corinthians 3.18. We beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. He is transforming His people. And we rest in Him to do that and we live it out in our lives. Let's pray. Oh Father, forgive us that we have in many ways, taken casual stands, even as the Corinthians. In various ways, Lord, over long periods of times in our lives, perhaps, or perhaps shorter times, but we're so casual in regard to advancing in Christ. So casual. And we we have to admit, Lord, that Paul's attitude here at the end of chapter 9 is many times not our attitude. Lord, we... We admit how easily we get tired, how easily we feel defeated, how easily we want to give up, how easily we make excuses, how easily we just drift along for long periods of time, almost in a day spiritually. Lord, we are weak and helpless and failing, and yet, that is us by nature, however, as we abide in you, you say we will bear much fruit, Lord Jesus. Your salvation is a thorough salvation that transforms us. Your Holy Spirit indwells us. We can and will be different people because of Christ Jesus. Oh, Lord, we trust you afresh. We pray that you would forgive us for how we have denied your salvation, how we have not believed you, how we have not trusted in your power and in your love, how we have not depended upon the Holy Spirit and been filled with the Spirit so that we might be transformed. Oh, Lord, we rest in you afresh and pray that you would lay hold of us in new and powerful ways by your Holy Spirit as we trust you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian.
1: ray break radiant through the shades of night and chase my fears away won't you chase my fears away then shall my soul with rapture trace the wonders of thy love